Chapter 1, Part 3 of Science in Short Chapters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Science in Short Chapters by W. Matteo Williams. Chapter 1, The Fuel of the Sun, Part 3. There is a method of manufacturing hypotheses which has become rather prevalent of late, especially among mathematicians, who take observed phenomena, and then arbitrarily and purely from the raw material of their own imagination, construct explanatory atoms, media, and actions, which are shaved and pared, scraped and patched, lengthened and shortened, thickened and narrowed, till they are made to fit the phenomena with mathematical accuracy. These laborious creations are then put forth as philosophical truths, and afterwards the accuracy of their fitting to the phenomena is quoted as evidence of the positive reality of the ethers, atoms, undulations, gyrations, collisions, or whatever else the mathematician may have thus skillfully created and fitted. It appears to me that such fitness only proves the ingenuity of the fitter, the skill of the mathematician, and that all such hypotheses belong to the poetry of science. They should be distinctly labeled as products of mathematical imagination, and nowise be confounded with objective natural truths. Such products of the imagination of the expert may assist the imagination of the student in comprehending some phenomena, just as Jack Frost and Billy Wind may represent certain natural forces to babies, but if Jack Frost, Billy Wind, electric and magnetic fluids, ultimate atoms, interatomic ethers, nervous fluids, etc., are allowed to invade the intellect, and are accepted as actual physical existences, they become very mischievous philosophical superstitions. I make this digression in order to repudiate any participation in this kind of speculation, though the fuel of the sun is avowedly a very bold attempt to unravel majestic mysteries i have not sought to elucidate the known by means of the unknown as do these inventors of imaginary agents but have scrupulously followed the opposite principle i have invented nothing but have started from the experimental facts of the laboratory the demonstrated laws of physical action and have followed up step by step what i understand to be the necessary consequences of these many years ago i convinced myself that our atmosphere is but a portion of universal atmospheric matter that dr wollaston was wrong and that the compression of this universal atmospheric matter is possibly the source of solar light and heat but as this was long before monsieur deville had investigated the subject of dissociation by heat I was unable to work out the problem at all satisfactorily. When I subsequently resumed the subject, I knew nothing about the corona, and had only read of the red prominences as possible lunar appendages, or solar clouds, or optical illusions. I had worked out the necessity of the gaseous eruptions and their action in effecting an interchange of solar and general atmospheric matter as the means of maintaining the solar light and heat, with no idea of proceeding further with the problem, when the announcement that the prominences were not merely unquestionable solar appendages, but were actually upheaved mountains of glowing hydrogen, suddenly and unexpectedly suggested their identity with my required atmospheric upheavals. 
it is true that their observed magnitude far exceeded my theoretical anticipations and in this respect i have made some a posteriori adaptations especially with the aid of a clearer understanding of the laws of dissociation which almost simultaneously became attainable in like matter the necessity of the solid ejections presented themselves before i knew anything of the recently discovered details of the coronal phenomena when i had merely read of a luminous halo which had been seen around the sun and relying upon mr lockyer vaguely supposed it to be an effect of atmospheric illumination i inferred that streams of solid particles must be pouring from the sun and showering back again but had no idea that such streams and showers were actually visible until i was rather startled on learning that the corona instead of being as i had loosely supposed a mere uniform filmy halo had been described by mr de la rue in his bakerian lecture on the eclipse of eighteen sixty as softening off with very irregular outline and sending off some long streams etc i was then living on the sides of a welsh mountain far away from public libraries and being no astronomer my own books kept me better acquainted with the current progress of experimental than with astronomical science even when the fuel of the sun was published i knew nothing of the american observations of the quadrangular figure of the corona or should certainly have then quoted them nor of the fact revealed by the eclipse of december eighteen seventy that wherever on the solar disk a large group of prominences was seen on mr seabrook's map there a corresponding bulging out of the corona was chronicled on professor watson's drawing and at the positions where no prominences presented themselves there the bright portions of the corona extended to the smallest distances from the sun's limb and that mr brother's photographs all show the corona extending much further towards the west than towards the east the west being the region richest in solar prominences i am sorry that the limits of this paper will not permit me to enter more fully into the bearings of the recent studies of the corona and the prominences upon my explanations of solar phenomena especially as the differences between the inner and outer corona which still appear to puzzle astronomers are exactly what my explanation demands i must make this the subject of a separate paper and proceed at once to the next step of the general argument assuming that such ejections of solid matter are poured from the prominences to what distances may they travel in attempting to answer this question i avowedly ventured upon dangerous ground for at the time of writing i only knew that the force of upheaval of the prominences must be enormous probably sufficient to eject solid matter beyond the orbit of the earth and even beyond that of mars actual measurements of the eruptive velocity of the solar prominences have since been made and they are so great as to relieve me of my quantitative difficulty and show that i was quite justified in the bold inference that these eruptions may account for the zodiacal light the zones of meteors into which our earth is sometimes plunged and even the outer zone of larger bodies the asteroids but how the reader will ask can such solids ejected from the sun acquire orbital paths around him we have been taught that the parabola is the necessary path of such ejections mr proctor has evidently reasoned in this matter for in last april number of fraser's magazine he says that some of my ideas are 
opposed to any known laws, physical or dynamical, that there is nothing absolutely incredible in the conception that masses of gaseous, liquid, or solid matter should be flung to a height exceeding manifold that of the loftiest of the colored prominences, whereas it is not only incredible, but impossible, that such matter should in any case come to circle in a closed orbit around the sun. More careful reading would have shown Mr. Proctor that I have considered other conditions besides those of the textbooks, that the case is by no means one of simple radial projection from a fixed body into free space and undisturbed return. I distinctly stated that the recent ejections may have any form of orbit within the boundaries of the conic sections from a straight line returning upon itself due to absolutely vertical projection to a circular orbit produced by the tangential projection of such curving prominences as the ram's horn, etc. The outline of the zodiacal light would be formed by the termination or aphelion portion of these excursions, or of such a number of them as should be sufficient to produce a visible result. Again, speaking of the asteroids in chapter 14, I state that I should have expected a still greater elongation and eccentricity in some of them, and such orbits may have existed, but an asteroid with an orbit of cometary eccentricity that would in the course of each revolution cross the paths of Mercury, Venus, the Earth, and Mars in nearly the same plane, and dive through the thickly scattered zodiacal cluster, both in going to the Sun and returning from it, would be subject to disturbances which would continue until one of two things occurred. Its tangential force might become so far neutralized and its orbit so much elongated that finally its perihelion distance should not exceed the solar radius when it would finish its course by returning to the sun. On the other hand, its tangential velocity might be increased by heavy pulls from Jupiter when slowly turning its aphelion path and be similarly influenced by friendly jerks in crossing the orbits of the inferior planets, and thus its orbit might be widened until it ceased periodically to cross the path of any of the planets by establishing itself in an orbit constantly intermediate between any two. Having once settled into such a path, it would remain there with comparative stability and permanency. If I am right in this view of the dynamical history of these older ejections, all the long elliptical paths of zodiacal particles, meteorites, or asteroids would thus in the course of ages become eliminated, and the remaining orbits would be of planetary rather than cometary proportions. A little reflection on the above stated laws of dissociation will show that the maximum violence of hydrogen explosion will not occur at the birth of the ejections, but afterwards, when the dissociated gases have been already hurled beyond the sphere of restraining vapors. If my explanation is correct, the typical form of a solar prominence should be that of a spreading tree with a tall stem. At first, the least resistance to radiation and consequent explosive combination must be in the vertical direction, as this will afford the shortest line that can be drawn through the thickness of the surrounding jacket of resisting vapor, but when raised above this envelope, the dissociated gases, cooled by their own expansion and comparatively free to radiate in all directions except downwards, will explode laterally as well as vertically and thus spread out into a head. My theoretical prominence will be, in short, 
a monster rocket proceeding steadily upwards to a certain extent and then gradually bursting and projecting its missiles in every direction from the vertical to the absolutely horizontal. Should the latter acquire a velocity of about 300 miles per second, not merely a closed but even an absolutely circular orbit would be possible. These and the multitude of weaker lateral ejections reaching the sun by short parabolic paths explain the mystery of the inner corona. I need only refer Mr. Proctor to his own recently published book on the sun, where he will find on plates 4, 5, and 6 a number of drawings from Zoliner and Respeghi, which so thoroughly confirm my necessary theoretical deductions that they might be a series of fancy sketches of my own. When we consider that the base of a prominence is only visible when it happens to start exactly from the limb of the sun, while the vastly greater proportion of those which are observed and have been drawn have much of the stem cut off from view by the solar rotundity, the evidence afforded by such drawings in support of my theoretical deduction that the typical form of the solar prominences is that of a palm tree or bursting rocket is greatly strengthened. In a paper by P. Secchi, dated Rome, March 20th, 1871, and published in the Compets Rendu, March 27th, this veteran solar observer speaks of the prominences as composed of jets, which, upon reaching a certain elevation, stop and whirl upon themselves, giving birth to a brilliant cloud. This cloud is represented as spreading out on all sides from the summit of the combined jets. Again, he says, it is very common to see a little jet spot at a certain elevation above the chromosphere and there spread itself out into a wide hat, un large chapeau, of an absolutely nebulous constitution. This outspreading nebulosity is the flash of the incandescent vapors produced by the explosion which is theoretically demanded by my explanation to occur exactly in the manner and place described. These expanded incandescent gases will be rendered visible by the spectroscopic dilution of the continuous spectrum of the denser photosphere, while the solid projectiles that must proceed from them in every direction can only be seen during a solar eclipse. The observations and drawings of Zollner and Respeggi were, for the most part, made while my book was in the press, and, like those of Secchi above quoted, were unknown to me when I wrote. I was then only able to quote, in support of my theoretical requirements, the evidences of actually observed tangential ejection afforded by Sir John Herschel's account of the great solar storm of September 1, 1859. Besides this direct tangential projection, there are other elements of motion contributing to the same result, such as the whirl of the prominences on themselves, their motion of translation on the sun's disk, and the rotation of the sun itself. I must now bring this sketch to a close by stating that, in order to submit the fundamental question of an universal atmosphere to an experimentum crucis analogous to that by which Pascal tested the atmospheric theory of Torricelli, I have calculated the theoretical density of the atmosphere of the moon and of each of the planets and compared the results as severely as I could with the observed facts. As Jupiter is 27,100 times heavier than the moon, and between these wide extremes there are six planets presenting great variations of mass, the probabilities of accidental coincidence are overwhelmingly against me, 
and a close concurrence of observed telescopic refraction and other phenomena with the theoretical atmospheric density must afford the strongest possible confirmation of the soundness of the basis of my whole argument such a concurrence exists and some new and very curious light is unexpectedly thrown upon the meteorology of mars and the constitution of the larger planets the latter if i am right must be miniature suns permanently red or white hot must be something like a photosphere surrounded by a sphere of vapor the outside of which we see must have mimic spot vortices and prominences and in the case of saturn must eject volleys of meteoric matter some of which should finally settle down into orbital paths and thus produce the rings these are startling conclusions and when i reached them they were utterly at variance with general astronomical opinion but i find since their publication that some astronomers have already shown considerable readiness to adopt them in my case this view of the solar constitution of the larger planets is not a matter of mere opinion or guessing or probability but it follows of necessity and as stated on page two hundred the great mystery of saturn's rings is resolved into a simple consequence a demonstrable and necessary result of the operation of the familiar forces whose laws of action have been demonstrated here upon the earth by experimental investigation in our laboratories no strained hypotheses of imaginary forces are required no ethers or other materials are demanded beyond those which are beneath our feet and around our heads here upon our own planet all that is necessary is to grant that the well-known elements and compounds of the chemist and the demonstrated forces of the experimental physicist exist and operate in the places and have the quantities and modes of distribution described by the astronomer this simple postulate admitted these wondrous appendages spring into rational existence and like the eternal fires of the sun the barren surface of the moon the dry valleys of mercury the hazy equivocations of venus the seas and continents and polar glaciers of mars and the cloud-covered face of jupiter follow as necessary consequences of an universal atmosphere if i am right in ascribing a gaseous condition to the sun and the larger planets and tracing the maintenance of this condition to the disturbing gravitation of the attendant planets or satellites a solution of the riddle of the nebulae at once presents itself we have only to suppose a star cluster or group composed of orbs of solar or great planetary dimensions and that these act mutually upon each other as the planets on our sun or the satellites upon saturn but in a far more violent degree owing to the far greater relative masses of the reacting elements and we obtain the conditions under which great gaseous orbs would be not merely pitted on their surface but riven to their very centers moulded and shaped throughout by the whirling hurricane of their whole substance when thus in the centre of a tornado of opposing gravitations the tortured orb would be twisted bodily into a huge vorticose crater into the bowels of which the aqueous vapor would be dragged and dissociated and then entangled with the inner matter of the riven sphere would be hurled upwards again to burst forth in an explosion of such magnitude that the original body would be measurably presented as a mere appendage the rocket case of the flood of fire it had vomited forth the reader must complete the picture 
if he will take a little trouble in doing so he will find that it becomes a portrait of one or the other of the nebulae according to the kind of intergravitating star cluster from which he starts i have endeavored to work out some of the details of the nebular conditions in chapter twenty in chapter twenty one i have concluded by showing the analogy between a sun and the hydroelectric machine the sun being the cylinder and the prominences the steam jets if issuing jets of high-pressure steam have the same properties at a distance of ninety-three millions of miles from the earth as upon its surface the body of the sun and the issuing steam must be in opposite electrical conditions and furious electrical excitation must result and if the laws of electrical induction are constant throughout the universe the earth must be as necessarily subject to solar electrical influence as to his thermal radiations thus the same reasoning which explains the origin and maintenance of the solar heat and light the sun-spots the photosphere the chromosphere the sierra the prominences the zodiacal light the aerolites and asteroids the meteorology of the planets and the rings of saturn also shows how the electrical disturbances which produce the aurora borealis and direct the needle may originate electrical theories of the corona and zodiacal light and their connection of some kind with the aurora borealis have been put forth in many shapes but so far as i have learned none afford any explanation of the origin of the electrical disturbance without this they are like the vortices of descartes which explain the movements of the planets by supposing another kind of motion still more incomprehensible explanations which are more difficult to explain than the phenomena they propose to elucidate only obscure the light of true science and stand as impedimenta to the progress of sound philosophy. End of chapter 1